There have been several videos posted online in the past few weeks that have shown store customers acting poorly, usually over a mask. And then as those videos went viral, there would be people who would kind of enact their own sense of justice, joining in online and judging the people. We have countless online vigilantes who would uh, take it upon themselves to, based on a one minute or so video, try a person and enact their own sense of judgment upon them. Now, I am not talking about the videos that we've also seen that have exposed racism. Videos that were taken by people out and about doing their normal lives, uh, trying to do their jobs, make uh, repairs to their homes, things as innocent as bird watching. And they encountered someone who was racist, who began threatening them uh, by their words and actions. Those videos have been very disturbing and disgusting to watch. And yet I have felt that they have been helpful for white people to see so that we have a better awareness and understanding of some of the daily acts of racism that ha happen to African-Americans and other people of color. I have to tell you that I've been shocked I've known about racism, I know that it exists, but I just had no idea that people would act that way. I'm not talking about those kind of videos. I'm talking about the videos where someone in a store or some other place just acts out badly and someone is there to capture it on video and post it quickly. And then as soon as it's posted, you have people who are enraged by it and they begin sharing it. And as it continues on, you have, before you know it, hundreds of thousands of comments that all try to outdo one another in how malicious they can be toward the customer. And then eventually you have someone who reveals the name and contact information of that customer and the punishment becomes even more personal. Now, I have seen some of these videos because as they have become viral, news stations have uh, taken them and included them in news stories and played them over and over. And of course, I'm angry at the behavior of the customer. I hate when anyone screams out profanities or even just rude comments. But I have to say that I get just as frustrated with the people who scream back, trying to match insult for insult. It just escalates the situation. Now, my anger doesn't have anything to do with the mask or the lack thereof, because I know that I have gone to the store, and when I have seen someone who wasn't wearing a mask, I never once felt obliged to start screaming at them because I know that there have been occasions that I have run in and forgotten my mask on several times. No, it's not about the mask. My anger is how people are treating each other. Now, of course, I've had my own experiences of people behaving badly. Many of them have happened while I was driving. Now, I confess 
that in regards to my driving, I am pretty self-centered, and I consider myself the guide to what is right and wrong. So whatever speed I'm going is the right speed. If someone's right behind me, they're obviously going too fast. And if someone is right in front of me, they're obviously going too slow because I'm focused on myself and that I'm in the right. But there are those times where someone does speed up behind me and gets right on my bumper. And I can see them in my rear view mirror kind of edging to the uh, side of the lane trying to peer around me and finally they'll pass and then they'll get right in front of me and slow down as if to punish me and to let me know what it felt like that I wasn't going the speed that they wanted. In those moments I have a flash of anger and frustration and I wish that someone had caught it all on video and I would post it so everyone could see the behavior of that person. But of course, I would never do that because to actually post that online would be just this ultimate arrogance about me that I would be putting that person on trial and I would be assuming the role of prosecutor, judge, and executioner because I would be pasting that, that short little snapshot of what happened without any kind of statement uh, from the other party, without any sense of the context, and without a hint of mercy. In the book, Love Your Enemies, Arthur C. Brooks makes the statement, we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. We don't have an anger problem right now. We have a problem with contempt. Contempt is anger mixed with disgust. And far too often, we're seeing examples of people treating one another with contempt. Now, contempt is rooted in arrogance because it assumes that the other person isn't worth as much. Contempt treats people as if they don't matter because that's what it believes. Now, we're living in a time of uncertainty and turmoil, but it doesn't mean that contempt has to become the new normal for our lives. We're better than that. This morning, I want to continue with the sermon series, The New Normal, Finding the Way in a Changing World. Now, all of us will experience times where it seems like our lives have been turned upside down. It just so happens that we're living in a time where we're all experiencing it together. And there have been some positives during this pandemic. We have been blessed by greater time with our families and, and people have expressed that it's been nice to not have such hectic, uh, frantic schedules and there is a sense of camaraderie as we're all experiencing this together. But of course, there are many negatives. And one of them is this tension that causes us to uh, turn inward. A tension that uh, can cause us to be on edge and lash out at others. To forget the needs of others and just focus on ourselves. Well, during this sermon series, we have used scriptures from the book of James. Now, most believe that the author 
was James, the brother of Jesus. And he wrote one of the earlier writings of the New Testament. Now, he was writing to early believers, people who were struggling in their uh, walk following Christ, because Jesus taught things that were countercultural, including saying something like, love your enemies and do good to them. We struggle with that kind of teaching. And so James wrote this piece to give practical advice on how to live that kind of life. I want to talk about three things this morning that address that and can help us live a life that is the life that Christ had designed for us. First, James tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord. In this morning's scripture passage, James addresses the topic of arrogance. And so he calls us to humble ourselves before God. He says the arrogance gives way to talking evil and judging others. And so we begin with humbling ourselves before the Lord. Now, this should be easy. When we come before the Lord of all creation, it should be our natural response to be humble before him. I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist uh, from Psalm 8 who said, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? We ought to have this sense of awe and wonder when we're before God, but sometimes we forget that we are always before God. God isn't kept in a church building. We come to worship to be with God and one another, to have a time of worship of God, to give thanks for all that God has done, for all the love that God shows. But we need to remember that God lives with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. And so God is always before us. And so everything we say and do is in front of God. We are called to humble ourselves. We are called to consider the needs of others before our own and to remember that every single person we've ever met, every person we will meet, is someone who is loved by God, someone who is a child of God. In her book, Angels on Earth, Stories of Fate, Friendship, and the Power of Connection, author Laura Schroff tells about Eileen Pacheco. When Eileen was uh, growing up in Portland, she had five sisters, and that meant that most of her clothes were hand-me-downs. So when she was 17 years old, she had a job. Most of the money went for school costs and for saving for college, but she had a little bit left over, and she decided she was going to buy herself a new sweater. And so she um, had a fashion magazine, and she was flipping through the pages, looking for ideas, and she came to an advertisement for the Christian Children's Fund, which said that for just $15 a month, she could sponsor an impoverished child from somewhere around the world. Well, Eileen had grown up in a Christian household, 
And one of the things her father had always taught she and her sisters was to begin every morning with the question to God, Lord, how do you want me to serve you today? And so she thought to herself, she didn't really need that new sweater. And she sent in the pledge card to sponsor a child. A short time later, she received a packet back with a picture and a description of a nine-year-old boy from Guatemala named Hippolito. And uh, after that, she sent in her very first $15, and she included a letter. Now, it had to abide by the strict rules of confidentiality, and so she could only reveal um, her name was Eileen, and she lived in Portland. Now, she sent that on in a a short while back, she received a letter from her nine-year-old uh, Hippolito from Guatemala, and he wrote and addressed her, Dear Madrina. No, that means godmother. And he started to tell her about the things that he liked. He liked school and soccer, and he closed the letter with numerous thank yous for her helping him to be able to go to school. And so it began, month after month, each would write the other and tell about things that were going on, and that continued uh, month by month, year by year, until nine years later when Hippolito turned 18, and he was no longer able to be a part of this children's ministry. He aged out. Now, Eileen was tremendously sad because she had grown to care for this child and uh, now he was a, a young man, and she had been riding him for nine years every month. And she was sad that it ended. She understood why the agency wouldn't give her personal contact information, but it still left a void in her heart. But Hippolito was determined. He wanted to thank his madrina in person. At first, he asked the agency for her contact information, and of course, uh, they turned him down. But as time went on, he became even more determined. He poured through her letters and the pictures for some sort of clue. Well, three years after he had been um, aged out of the program, he received a scholarship to attend Georgetown University, and he took with him a clue. It was one of the last letters that Eileen had written to him where she talked about um, her recent marriage to a man named David Schwartz. And somehow she forgot uh, about not writing a last name and somehow the agency forgot to redact it and he had her new last name. And so when Hippolito got to the Capitol, he went to the Library of Congress and found a Portland phone book and sure enough, he was able to find a phone number for Eileen Schwartz. And so he called her up and he said, Madrina, this is your godson from Guatemala. Now, fortunately, he got the right Eileen Schwartz on the first call and they were able to reminisce and catch up on the past three years. And by the end of the phone call, Eileen made arrangements for Hippolito to come out to Portland to meet them. He would meet not only Eileen and her husband, David, but their three-year-old son, Taylor, as well as all of Eileen's extended family, her parents, her sisters, and their families. 
He would stay two weeks, and by the end of the time, he was a part of their family. Toward the end of his stay, he uh, saw Taylor run in the kitchen, and he motioned to Taylor, and he told Eileen that when Taylor has graduated, he would have achieved his Ph.D. Now, Eileen was so excited for his goals, but she kept her worries to herself. She didn't see any way possible for this young man who lived in poverty to be able to achieve a PhD. Well, they were able to keep in contact, and so he updated her on his educational progress. After he finished college, he went back to Guatemala to earn money, and eventually he was given a scholarship to graduate school in Germany. And he would go for a little while and then return to Guatemala to earn more money to be able to return. And it continued like that throughout the years. And finally, Eileen received a very special email. Her son Taylor had graduated from college and the email said, my dear Madrina, I have been awarded a PhD from the University of Heidelberg Institute of Computer Science and I dedicate the PhD to you. Now, of course, after she got out of college, she was able to buy herself the clothes that she needed, but because she was willing to sacrifice and delay buying one sweater in particular, she was able to partner with a young man and help him achieve his dreams. What would it happen if we are humbling ourselves and putting the needs of others before our own, if we will delay some of the things that we want in order to partner and help someone else achieve their dreams. Second, we are told by James to not speak evil of one another. How many times do we say or post negative comments? We're quick to share them, and we can do better than that. Uh, I, one of my favorite quotes is, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But that's not quite the complete story for us, because it's not enough for us just to just remain neutral. We are called to use our voices to encourage others, to inspire them, and to cheer them on in life. We are called to use our words, written or spoken, for good. Many of you may have heard the recent story about Maya Moore. She is the WNBA player who set out a season so that she could help free a man who had been wrongfully imprisoned. Now, Maya Moore is a, a devout Christian, and when she was 18 years old, she joined in her godparents' prison ministry, and there she was introduced to a man named Jonathan Irons, and they told her his story. When he was 16 years old, he was, as he described himself, a juvenile delinquent, and he was getting into trouble, and he was known by the police because he had tried to break into a car to steal it. Well, out of that same neighborhood, there was a home invasion where a homeowner arrived home and encountered a burglar, startled him, and the burglar shot him twice. Now, the homeowner, the victim, survived, 
and the police showed him a police lineup, a photo lineup, and the man said he wasn't able to identify anyone. And so they encouraged him to give his best guess. And he pointed to the larger of the pictures, which is a picture of Jonathan, and then he also pointed to a, another uh, man in the lineup. That was the only evidence against Jonathan, one man's best guess after he admitted he didn't recognize anyone. Now, there had been fingerprint evidence. There was a fingerprint found at the scene that didn't belong to the victim or to Jonathan, but the prosecution suppressed that evidence, and it wasn't discovered till years later by Maya's godparents in their investigations. And so when Jonathan was just 18 years old, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. When she met him and heard his story, something in her heart changed, and she knew that she had to be a part of helping him in his struggles. And so even though her life was extremely busy, she was getting ready to go to the University of Connecticut where she would play basketball, she would continue to support him, writing him encouraging letters and sharing devotional materials with him. When she graduated from college, she had done so well that she was the first pick of the first round of the WNBA draft. And she would go on to help her team, the Minnesota Lynx, win four national championships over seven years. During that same time, she won two Olympic gold medals in 2012 and 2016 in women's basketball. She was extremely busy. And over the last few years, she felt that as talented as she was, as much as she loved basketball, she wanted to do even more. And early in 2019, she made the decision to set out that season so she could focus full time on Jonathan Iron's case. She hired a well-known defense attorney and together they worked diligently to get the courts to hear their arguments. And finally, this past March, a judge vacated um, Jonathan Iron's sentence and after a few more legal battles and winning them, this past Wednesday, Jonathan Irons walked out of prison a free man. He's, he was greeted by Maya Moore and her entire family as well as his own. And he would go on to say that Maya was a light in his life. In the midst of his struggles, she continued to be a blessing and encouragement to him. We are called not to just not say anything bad, it's not enough for us to just remain neutral. We are to use our voices for good, to speak words of encouragement and kindness and support of one another. And third, we are told by James to not judge our neighbors. In fact, this is uh, one of the most forceful statements James will make. He says, who are you that you judge your neighbor? For James, he consider, considers judging someone else the ultimate of arrogance because it assumes that that person knows everything about the person they're judging. 
It assumes that they know everything about the law and they are taking the place of God. Who are you to judge your neighbor? All of us have experienced the harsh words and judgment of others at one time or another in our lives and we know how painful that is. Why would we inflict that on someone else? We know that we have only received grace and mercy from Christ. Why would we turn around and want condemnation for someone? We are called to love our neighbors, not judge them. In that same book, uh, Angels on Earth, Laura Schroff tells about Horst and Luisa Ferrara and their son, Sebastian. Now, Horst was from Venezuela, and Luisa was from Italy. And so when they had their first child, they decided on the name Sebastian because it was easy to pronounce in English, Italian, and Spanish. And he was a delight to them. Now, Horst and Luisa met because of mutual friends, and as soon as they met, they started dating. Five years later, they were married in Venezuela. In 2003, they moved to Gainesville, Florida, and a year later, Sebastian was born. And he was just the light of their lives. He was one of these children who was naturally inquisitive, and he engaged with people, and he was always cheerful. By the time he was three years old, he had traveled to many places around the world, and he could speak Spanish with his father, Italian with his mother, and English to anyone else. He was a special, special child. Well, during that same year that he was three, he was at a routine checkup with his pediatrician, and the doctor recommended that they take him in to test his growth-stimulating hormone. Um, he said that, he, that Sebastian was behind on the growth curve. And just to have this routine test to see if there were any issues. And so they took them, it took Sebastian to the hospital where the test was performed and something tragic happened. Sebastian was accidentally given an overdose of the amino acid that was necessary to perform the test. And 48 hours within uh, the beginning of that test, he passed away. Now, of course, the Ferraros were devastated, but their tragedy became even worse when they discovered that this, was, this occurred through a series of preventable mistakes. Now, for anyone in that situation, we would have understood if they would have given in to rage and, and grief and anger and yet, within a few days of Sebastian's death, they knew that that kind of path would be destructive to them. And so they made a choice to move forward so that they could honor and remember their son. They had a deep desire that no other parent should have to go through what they experienced. Their greatest dream was that a children's hospital would be built there in Gainesville. Because the hospital where Sebastian had died was one that treated adults and children and everything was so spread out and mixed. And so they thought that 
a children's hospital would be dedicated and have the right procedures in place to prevent those kind of mistakes from happening in the future. A year after his death, they set about um, on their dream. Now to do that, they made a decision to partner with the very hospital that was responsible for the death of their son, the University of Florida Health Shands Hospital there in Gainesville. Now, Horst would say that th these were people who readily came to them right after it happened. They were grief-stricken, they understood their mistake, and they were apologetic, and they acted honorably. The Ferraros didn't hire attorneys or tried to take the hospital to court. Rather, they got together with the administration and they were given a settlement of $800,000 that was the seed money for their new foundation. Now, of course, $800,000 is a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to what they would have received had they taken the hospital to court. And if they had taken the hospital to court, they would have been able to tell the world about the individuals responsible for their son's death, for what they had done. They could expose that kind of shame to the world. But the Ferraros didn't want to do that. They wanted the greater good. And so instead, they took the settlement and partnered with the hospital at their first gala event, they raised over $5 million, but they knew they still had a long way to go. And so they kept enlarging their circle and bringing people on board. And finally, in 2014, the Ferraros were there to cut the ribbon that officially opened the Sebastian Ferraro Atrium that opened up into a brand new state-of-the-art children's hospital the University of Florida Health Shands Children's Hospital. And so Sebastian's life continues to be remembered and honored in all the children receiving the best of care possible and for all the parents who will not have to experience what the Ferraros experienced. Now, all of us will have times that we want to lash out and judge someone else we're better than that. James tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord. I want to ask each of you to do one thing, to begin each day asking the question, Lord, how do you want me to serve you today? How can my words and actions serve you today? And then remember, not to speak evil against anyone. Use your words for good and don't judge your neighbors. Instead, love your neighbors, no exceptions. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.